Welcome to Inside Vancouver Opera, a brand new companion audio series to support our main stage productions. My name is Ashley Daniel Foote, Vancouver Opera's new Manager of Partnerships and Engagement. Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore is Vancouver Opera's final production of this season, and it's a delightful tale of forbidden love across class divides and the shenanigans that take place along the way. It pokes fun at social hierarchies, and it's packed with absurd characters. For 2022, the story was adapted by J.D. Derbyshire, and our production is directed by Brenna Corner and music directed by Rosemary Thompson, and features a wonderful cast of singers including Caitlin Wood, Ernesto Ramirez, Jorel Williams, Peter McGilvery, Megan Latham, and Marcus Nance. Earlier, teaching artist Eve Daniel caught up with director Brenna Corner to discuss the ins and outs of creating this sparkling new production, and the challenges of understanding tragedy and comedy, and the importance of art now more than ever. Please enjoy this lovely conversation. Something I, as like an onstage person, I'm always fascinated with, with the behind the stage people is, where do you start when someone hands you like a 300 or 400 page score? Where do you start? I always start with the story. Um, but for me, the story isn't just the libretto. The story is the music and the libretto. It's the two things together. The composer and the librettist decided that these moments were going to take this much time. We're going to be set in these specific ways. We're going to have emphasis in this particular place. You know, was going to have scampery music here or slow emotional music here. And to me, that's how... So you have to start with kind of the whole thing because that's where all the clues are about what the essence of the story is, what, what the goal that the composer originally intended is. Especially when you have someone, like a team, like Gilbert and Sullivan, where they really were, they were doing the whole thing together. There wasn't one and then the other. Do you uh, yeah. incorporate, like how much do you get to dig into those sorts of relationships and the context of the art? Um, I think it sort of depends. I mean, for me, it uh, it sort of it really just depends on the show. Um, for some productions, the relationship between the words and the music are are different than they are in something like Gilbert and Sullivan. Gilbert and Sullivan is all about clever, witty, you know, comical phrases with music, with sort of cheeky uh, underlays of music that helps you sort of understand where the joke ends, where the button is, where the emotional moment is, right? But if you look at something like Verdi, the, the text functions differently. It does the same thing for us, but um, obviously in a less sort of tongue-in-cheek way. Will you tell the listeners about what you've done with this production? Because Gilbert and Sullivan historic pairing, historic works of art that have been popular for uh, so many decades. We're wandering into centuries now, but you've expanded it. So can you talk to us about, talk to us about the process for taking an historical piece of art and just widening its reach a bit? The thing for me that is important about any art we do is that it, it feels relevant, that it, it, resonates with us, even if it's 100, 200, 400 years old. And one of the things that's great about all of these masterpieces 
in the operatic canon or even in the, the theatrical canon um, is that there's an essence, there's a sort of a humanity about it that is true. And that part doesn't change. And so I think mm. for me, that's always the, the key is finding whatever that thing, that humanity, that essence is in the story. And then once you have that, it's, it's easy to focus the, the light through the diamond in a slightly different way, to see the prism a different way. And, and that's sort of what we've done with, with Pinafore. Um, I mean, Pinafore was created in a very specific time period. And, um, you know, when Britons ruled the waves and there was, um, you know, great pride in, in how uh, Britain had uh, come to exist throughout the world. But sort of for a modern audience, we've come to a place where the impacts of some of those uh, political and economic choices that were made are, are really resonating for us now. We're really starting to understand what that is. And so for me, it was important to, to look at this show and, and make sure that we didn't just do Gilbert and Sullivan's pinafore. We didn't just do a pinafore from the Victorian era, but we did a pinafore that that could resonate with an audience into, of today. That could that could touch us and that could make us laugh about yeah. some of the ridiculousness of today. I was reflecting on that because, of course, Gilbert and Sullivan were so protective of their scripts. They were so protective of how the performers did their piece of art. But as you say, it was written to be relevant. It was written to be current. It was written to make sense for their specific audience. And there are certain things that if we pull that forward and now we do it in the middle of Vancouver, won't resonate the same way it did in the 1800s for the London audience. But it made me think about the larger scale of that. What responsibility do we have as modern artists for honoring the original tent, intent of the artists and their art, but also letting it evolve forward with the intent it had of being modern and relevant to the people watching it? I think that's an excellent question. I mean, I think that's something that arts organizations and artists, we all sort of struggle to, to find the balance in between. Mm -hmm. For me, the thing that is important is that, as you said, Gilbert and Sullivan intended it to be a commentary and a reflection upon modern society. And I just can't believe that if Gilbert and Sullivan weren't around today, that they wouldn't have a slightly different outlook on it. I once heard someone say that um, if Mozart were around today, surely he would have composed for the electric guitar. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I also think like, I mean, you cannot tell me that if, if Wagner had been around when they were making giant movies, that he would not have written some version of Peter Jackson's The <laughs> Ring trilogy that went on for 27,000 hours. I just, you know what I mean? They, these, these artists wrote in a time period and in the genres that were, and in the genres that were, were available to them with the tools that were available to them. Yeah. And so much has changed since now, then. And so I think one of our sort of duties as artists 
and and this is just me, but like I think of myself not necessarily as a creative artist, but as an interpretive artist. My job is to interpret the works of other great people have created. And so my job as an interpretive artist is to keep their legacy alive. And that does not mean doing the same thing. That does not mean strict adherence to everything that's written on the page. Although, you know, for some people that is exactly what it means for them and that's fine. But for me, it, it means finding what that core is, maintaining that core. Because to me, that yeah. core idea, that core musicality, that core story, that is the, actually the legacy that's left to us in these works. Yeah, we kind of find the thing that will make the Vancouver 2022 audience laugh as much as the London 1800s audience did. Whether it's the same joke or a new joke, something that gets the same joy and the same relevance. And as you say, it just keeps it a living art form if we interpret it and honor it and keep it moving with the times. Uh, So tell me about this specific show. You've done a wonderful thing, which is you've expanded some of the characters and the roles, which I find very exciting. I'm always looking for ways to honor. My big thing is honoring the role of women in history and the role of women in art. And you've done that by literally making more space for them in the show. When did that idea come into the process? When did you decide that Dear Cousin Hebe was not just seen, she would also be heard? Um, well, it sort of came about um, very much in, our, in the conversations that JD and I had together. Um, one of my uh, big things was I just, I really just wanted to know who this woman was. Yeah. I just needed to understand who Hebe was like, because otherwise she truly is the person who sings about the sisters and the cousins and the aunts and kind of that's it. And it, it, it just didn't make it any, it just doesn't make good dramatic sense, right? You have this woman, no. you have this character. I, I, I want to know what's going on with her. I want to meet her. I want to understand what her story is. And so when JD and I were talking about that, JD really got into that idea and um, sort of really fleshed out this 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 woman um, attached to Sir Joseph Porter, Sir Joseph Porter, KCB. Um, yeah, so it's sort of a lot of the the sort of changes um, to some of the stories or some of the characters really came out of conversations that JD and I had together about um, about you know, questions that we had about the show or problematic moments in staging or um, just uh, some of it, there were a couple of moments that were just like technical questions. Like how on earth, why on earth is this person on stage right now? Let's create a reason. (laughs) Let's make sure. And, you know, and it's very possible that in the original staging, there was a great reason. And that maybe didn't make it into the, the libretto that we have now or whatever. And so, you know, we now have the freedom to narr- you know, narrate that or add, pepper all those little, um, those little candies in there now. I love that. I just, I, when I was reading the script, there were so many moments where suddenly not only were the women saying more, but they were saying more completely excluding the men which is something that we didn't even have in movies very much until 
our recent lifetimes, how did you decide on who was going to interact and how did you end up having to remove other dialogue for it, which is a great way to make space for new people. But how did you come to figure out how these three women would build their relationships together? There was some dialogue that was replaced mm-hmm. with um, with JD's new dialogue. Um, most, yeah, a lot of that dialogue um, was not necessarily replaced, but sort of altered, um, either because there were uh, nomenclature that people wouldn't know that or that really isn't sort of used or isn't really even appropriate to use anymore in this modern age. Um, So some of it has to do with things like that. Um, Some of it had to do within the the sort of structure of the story, right? If, how are we going to, how are we going to continue to make sure we actually tell the story of HMS Pinafore while also developing these, these characters. So a lot of it was, um, sort of inserting moments into the structure that was already there. Uh, it's, yeah, it's mostly, mostly that. Mostly sort of little inserts of, um, of sort of female moments of recognition, I guess you could call it. Yeah. yeah. Have you had an experience working with an historical piece of art and getting to be this fluid with it before? Oh, I'm never, never this fluid with it before. Comedy is, uh, there's sort of a level of fluidity that is required in comedy and also uh, that is kind of called for um, in GNS. Um, you know, there's always, anytime you do Carmen or, or, or a Mozart or anything like that, you know, there are things that you, there is some fluidity because nobody, nobody wants to sit through the full like four and a half hour version of Carmen with all the dialogue and the, you know, or maybe some really hardcore people do, but those audience members aren't interested in that anymore. So there's always a little bit of fluidity in how you sort of curate the piece out of the sort of, you know, when we make, we make the cuts, we, um, we decide which parts of the dialogue we're going to keep to make sure we tell the story, meet all the characters. So there's always a little bit of that. Um, but uh, but this is a, a new degree of that, I must admit. You mentioned Carmen, which you have done for Atlanta, and some of the other famous, very famous operas like Don Giovanni for Seattle, La Boheme for Calgary. And all of these are not only famous, like high up operatic art when we think of the great operatic pieces. They're all largely sung and all of the dialogue is or almost all of the dialogue and action is delivered through music. How does it inform or color your approach to the rehearsal room or developing the production before you meet any of your colleagues? But how does it inform your process if you're suddenly working with so much dialogue, like in a GNS piece? Well, I think the the major difference with dialogue is that it's just all of a sudden the actors on stage are in control of time, right? During a, a production that is sung through, or even that's recit to various degrees, if it's accompanied recit or, you know, mm. um, dry recit or whatever. But it, it's that the performer now has much more control of time, which in a way is great for us doing a comedy, since comedy is 
that great phrase, comedy is tragedy with better timing. I, I personally believe that to be quite true. And I think, um, so, I, so I think the difference is, is that you, we can play with, we can play with sort of creating the music of the dialogue. We play with pauses, we play with rhythm, all of that sort of stuff. We end up developing and discovering. And the beautiful thing is that these performers, the, the performers are always so great. You know, they come with a deep idea and sort of understanding because what we do all day anyways is talk. Everyone talks, right? That's, that's what we, you know, one of the ways we communicate with each other. Um, so I think there's a, there's a sort of ease into that sort of style of communication for many performers. And so um, what I try to do is just kind of hook into that and then we play we play with the sort of musicality of it, the rhythm, the stops, the pauses, etc. There was a fabulous quote that I have in my memory, and I was trying so hard to track it down on the internet before you and I talked today. But I think it was Joan Sutherland who was saying, thank goodness for opera, because she doesn't have to decide when to speak. The music tells her, and that responsibility is off her shoulders. <laughs> and I have to admit, like... As yep. someone who predominantly sings, the idea of being in charge of my own timing is quite daunting. <laughs> but as you say, it gives us so much room to play. It gives, and it, it gives us, uh, it gives us room, particularly in the rehearsal room. I mean, and on stage too. But it it gives us time to develop, to develop the moment, to find the comedy, to mine for different moments that you can do that uh, that you can do during during a musical moment, but in the musical moments, the composers have dictated what that moment is. There's subtext, there's starry music, there's the moment where he gets bonked on the head. It's all generally quite clear in the score what's supposed to happen. And all of a sudden you lose that. So then all of a sudden the onus comes on to the performers and onto our sort of a different style of storytelling. And, um, and it just opens up a little bit of space, I think, for um, for play. Do you find that when you're working with, um, your casts, do you find that that's a different dynamic that you have to build into the room? Cause I know some of your singers are predominantly opera singers. Is that playfulness and that confidence with spoken text, something that you have to address quite early on? Or do you find, as you say, that because speaking is so natural to almost all humans, um, speaking is so natural that it lends itself quite well to doing the dialogue moments in what is an operetta or a largely sung piece of art. In general, I would say yes. I mean, of course it changes if you're not doing it in, you know, if you're doing the dialogue in Carmen and French is not a language you're actually comfortable speaking in, then yeah, you know, that's mm -hmm. something you want to address quite early on because it's not because there's many levels, there's just many levels, things involved in, in being in the moment as a performer and telling that story. Um, but in general, I think it's my, always one of my goals in the rehearsal room is to create a space where the performers can play and where everyone can kind of, for lack of a better word, mess up and then it's okay. So that in that I once had a, a, an acting teacher talk about the fact that it's called a play. So why aren't you playing? 
why aren't you having fun? And I've never forgot that. I mean, honest to goodness, we were in this acting class and for two weeks, all we did was play like silly childhood games for each other. But what was fascinating was when people were playing, that's when they were exciting. That's when they were watchable. And it is called a play. So we must play. And that's, to me, that's when the story comes alive. That's when the characters come alive. And inherently and inevitably, that is when the music meshes with the story and becomes exactly as it was originally intended. I'm reflecting on tragedy and comedy together. And it's interesting to think of that playfulness in the context of the much more serious works you've done. Do you find that play largely informs those um, those arts as well? Do you work it into the megadramatic moments as well? I think so. I mean, the thing about rehearsing um, a, a tragedy, you know, something that is actually very deeply uh, emotional and engaging and requires a huge level of vulnerability from the performers is that we have to make that rehearsal space anything but that it has to be light and fun and um, not sparkly, but it has to have energy to it and safety. And that's how then we're able to create, you know, then, then performers can explore and create and discover a performance that, that rings true for them. Um, Whereas, I mean, the thing with comedy, comedy is timing and timing is an awful lot of practice. Timing is choreography. (laughs) Timing is hitting the buttons. Timing is landing at the right moments and sharp looks. And that kind of stuff always requires a little bit of of meticulous practice. It's been two years of very extraordinary circumstances. Looking forward... What do you hope that the industry and the companies you work with and the artists you work with, what do you hope we'll be able to learn from the lessons of working through a pandemic or not working through a pandemic? And what do you hope we take with it going forward and let it inform how art evolves from this moment? I think my biggest hope is that we sort of we leave the pandemic with an understanding about the value of art. Art isn't just Spotify um, and mm. it's not just things on YouTube. Art is, exists in, in so much of our everyday lives and we rely on it so much when things get dark. And I think for a while, as a society, we sort of, we sort of forgot the purpose of art, the reason for it. And two years without it or with alterations to it, or for some people without being able to do it or being out, being able to see it or connect with it. My hope is that it has empowered us to, to value it again. Um, and, and to trust that that value is not wrong. But I also think that there's something about just in general in our society, our, our respect and our understanding for how we value art, that art isn't just the thing that you can, it isn't the thing you should defund um, Mm. 
so that you can, you know, fund the science lab. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't fund the science lab. Please, please, if we've learned nothing else from COVID, fund the science lab. But we should also fund the music classes. And we should also fund the writing classes. And we should also fund the drama classes. Because it's, it's in those that that's actually where we get the release of being human. That's where we get to learn about being human. That's where we get to watch about being human. That's where we get to discover and build empathy. And that's actually the thing that we need as humans. And to me, that is the one thing that I feel like, or I hope, that COVID has taught us to do. Director Brenna Corner, in conversation with Vancouver Opera teaching artist Eve Daniel. HMS Pinafore is on stage at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre from April 30th to May 8th. You can get your tickets now at vancouveropera.ca. Thanks, and I look forward to seeing you there. To be continued. <laughs>